up in the start house. Lindsey Vaughn, this is her chance now. It's what she's worked so hard for. You have to find a way to be the best that you've ever been in your entire life in that one moment. And you have to be in that moment right in the starting gate. Somewhat nervous looking, uh, no surprise, that uh, Lindsey Vaughn. Lower my breathing and I said, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. I just said it over and over and over. And I just skied and I, I won. Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Author of the New York Times bestselling book, Grit. And I thought, like, if I could understand it better, right? Like, if I can understand a Lindsey Vaughn, then maybe when you talk about working out hard or being pushed to your absolute limit, that's every day. So why is it to be so damn tough? Sometimes there's a misunderstanding of greatness that, like, it looks very, you know, shiny. there's a part of, you know, yeah, exactly. It looks so shiny, but, like, how many people are like, people so Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Steinfurt. And today we have what I would say is a gold medal episode because we have two of the best in their field on the call at one time. Firstly, Lindsey Vaughn, who is the best US ski performer of all time. I, I may be fumbling that intro there, Lindsey, but all, all I know is you, you were and have been the best in the world. I think, uh, okay, so Olympic gold medal, two uh, world championships and 83 gold medal performances in the World Cup. Is that correct? Something like that. 82. But, 82. you know, we okay. can just go with 83. We could go with 93. <laughs> you know, whatever number that's higher than 82, we could go with that as well. <laughs> Great. So welcome, Lindsay Vaughn. appreciate you joining us. And uh, our, other, our other guest is, uh, I'm lucky enough to say I have, I've worked with Angela. Uh, I'd call her a colleague and a friend, but Angela is the best in the world in an academic sense, been awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant for her work on grit, uh, research on passion and perseverance, primarily initially with school children and helping them learn, but it's, it's spread into so many different areas. Angela, welcome and thanks for joining us. Hi, it's great to be here with both of you. I would say it's an honor for me to be here with both of you. You, you two have interacted together. I'm interested to, to just hear a little more about how your paths crossed firstly, and then we'll take it from there. Lindsay, can you remember how we met? I remember having dinner in New York and I'm like, wait, how did we first get introduced? Um, I think it was just that I was obsessed with your book. <laughs> I was going to say the opposite. I was like, probably I was stalking you because, I mean, Lindsay is what I study, right? Like, like my whole, my whole research program is trying to figure out how people become Lindsay Vaughn. I feel like I must've stalked you, Lindsay. There was some communication, um, I, I know that I reached out to you to try to be a part of my foundation because I was actually trying to figure out a way to teach kids grit. Um, oh, that's right. My and foundation. You, with girls and, and so, your camp and like, yeah. okay. Yeah. That, I reached I, out to you and um, yeah, I talk about you all the time. We well, talk about each other very positively all the time. Yeah. And I, a, we'll try to say a something mutual. a little more, a little more like conflict-ridden, if that makes for better podcasting. <laughs> no, I'm good with this. This is a mutual admiration society right now. I'm, I'm exactly. good with that because a lot of people admire the both of you, and partly, like both of you have mentioned there that this connection between the two of you, but also Angela, your work, and Lindsay will explore that stuff that you've done with children as well. Like it starts from a good place. It's not about, uh, I want to be the best in the world, although that probably exists somewhere in there. But a lot of the, the initial spark is like, how do I help this kid be better or deal with stuff better? Angela, I'll jump to you because that's really where a lot of your work started as a, as a teacher 
before you became a psychology professor and worldwide leader on grit, you were teaching kids and that really sparked this journey. Like, can you recall a moment where you're like, that was the point where I'm like, oh, Timmy Smith over there really needs something different. You know, I I taught in my uh, 20s and if I really am honest, you know, like when did I get interested in achievement and what people could do when they're motivated? It definitely precedes my 20s. Um, It probably goes all the way back to my childhood. You know, my dad was so obsessed with achievement. And I think I grew up in a family where it was always uh, talked about like, you know, you know, when, when people talk about being the greatest or like, I mean, it was like dinner time conversation, like who's the greatest physicist, who is the greatest artist, who's the greatest CEO, like what's it. So that is my, I'm not saying that was a good thing, by the way, just <laughs> it is a thing. And then when I became a teacher, I was, um, I, I was pretty uh, like disappointed in my own, I was frustrated in my own inability to motivate my kids. I mean, when I study people like Lindsay, what I find so remarkable is, is not only the talent, which I think, you know, we can talk about separately, but, but really like, I mean, extraordinary motivation, like, that is consistent and at such high levels over time, that to me is actually the remarkable element, like their character. And I just was not so great at, um, you know, bringing that out in my in my middle school and high school students. And I thought like, if I could understand it better, right? Like if I can understand a Lindsey Vaughn, then maybe, and I think this might motivate Lindsay, like, you know, the idea of helping young girls. It's like, if we can kind of give them, uh, like a user's guide to their own motivation, maybe they won't have to, you know, take as long a trajectory of developing it, or maybe, you know, they can kind of develop it, uh, you know, in, in more efficient ways than 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 otherwise. I mean, you mentioned their talent because it does take time for that to evolve and to show out. But Lindsay, you were skiing from the age of uh, like yeah. early, yeah, and. And so like there might've been some talent there, but that's a long time to be learning something. Do you feel like you were innately talented or it was like, I just happened to do it a lot and for a long time? I think it was a combination of, of all three of those things. Um, you know, I, I think I definitely had an inherent talent to it, but it didn't come right away. It, it took um, until I was probably nine or 10 to where I really started to show that I was getting quite, like I, I kind of, hit this point where I started to really learn very quickly. And I started um, skiing a lot faster and I started moving up in the age ranks. Um, But it took me kind of a while to get going. And then once I got it, I really took off. But, you know, I, there are different, definitely different different steps along the way where I had to, you know, re-motivate myself. You know, I wasn't really the person that wanted to work out very hard when I was growing up. Um, so I had to learn how to do that because I reached a point in skiing where I wasn't getting any better. And, you know, my dad had a lot of great analogies like should or get off the pot. And so I had to like figure it out. Okay. So here's what I want to know, Patty, if you agree with me, then we can ask Lindsay like together, but like the, um, the shift maybe that happened around nine or 10, whereas like before you were that age, well, you were skiing a lot, but like but things were different. Like you weren't as focused and motivated. Um, like, was it, was it the pep talks that your dad had or I don't know if you call them pep talks, but like, was, was <laughs> what, what do you think, what do you think happened? I really, this is my belief and my dad disagrees with me, but um, I think it's when I met Peekaboo Street when I was nine, that really kind of like triggered something. 
think I've seen pictures, where, right? Like you have photos. Yeah. Of, yeah. In your book, I think actually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I just, I, I never really imagined skiing as, as being like a career or as being something that was tangible. It was more so something that I did for fun that I enjoyed doing with my friends and I wanted to be really good at, you know, I wanted to win, but I didn't understand like long-term what that meant, you know? And then when I saw her physically in real life, I'd seen her on TV and I was like, wow, okay, this is what I want to be. And then I said, dad, how do I get there? And, um, and then, you know, we planned it out that I would, I would be 17 of the 2002 Olympics and that would be a time that I could like that I could make it. And so we kind of worked backwards from there and like made a, made a whole plan, like made a, you know, an eight year plan, 10 year plan. And, uh, and that's wow. when I kind of really became a lot more driven and focused and he thinks that I would have done it anyways. I, I think it's possible that I would have found some, something else to motivate me, but it's, I'm just, I don't know. I think that's really what did it. Yeah. The tangible, the, the ability to see it and, and know that it's possible is, is something that a few guests have mentioned. Lacey Evans from WWE being one. Use the phrase there, whatever it takes. Like I saw this and I was like, okay, now it's, it's whatever it takes. You weren't working out that hard. You had to learn how to motivate yourself. And one of the things I like to do with people who come on the show is ask like, what's your definition of toughness? That often comes up when people say, well, toughness is doing whatever it takes. How would you describe toughness in your experience? Either you've seen it or clearly you've lived it to be at it this long and to be that good. What does toughness mean to you? I think there are different levels of toughness. I think there's also different levels of understanding of the toughness that you have, that you possess. Um, you know, I, I always thought at certain levels of my career that I was tough. And then I was faced with another obstacle or challenge and figured out, okay, wow, I have to overcome this. And I realized I'm that much tougher than I was before. Um, I think injuries being probably some of the most challenging moments of my career, but also in, in terms of, you know, learning how to work out hard, you know, for a long time, when I started to work out hard, I felt like, wow, this is, this is really hard. You know, I'm working all the time and, you know, this is hard. And then I got a, a trainer from, um, who lived in Monaco, who was Polish and, uh, he really pushed me to the absolute limit. And, um, I'd never been pushed in that way before. And I actually kind of use that as my like toughness factor, you know, am I pushing myself as hard as he did? And so I, I had, I've had to change my scale of, you know, what toughness is throughout my career. And, and um, it's, you know, it's a process, it's a learning process. You realize what you can handle as a person, as an athlete. And um, if you really want to make it and get through it, then you will, and you'll find a way. Again, circling back to the whatever it takes, but it's interesting you mentioned levels there. That's something that I've only uh, heard one other performer say, but I personally agree with it because there are, there's not only a definition of it, but your idea of working hard versus this other person's idea of working hard can be really different. And, and you also mentioned the discovering what's in yourself already. Uh, and I'll circle back to that. But Angela, while we're on the definitions of toughness, from one of the toughest women I've ever worked with and interacted not with. Actually, like I am not, I'm just somebody who studies people like Lindsay I am not myself like I disagree a, with that. Oh uh, yeah, I was gonna say, come on, time out. Time I've out. had my struggles, but okay, Angela, fine. You've told me this story once of you being like, okay, I, I decided, and it might have been your husband who challenged you on it, and you had jumped around from a few careers, right? 
And then right. you're like, all right, screw it. I'm going to do 10 years right now. I'm going to dive into this. And when I come up for air in 10 years, then I'll decide what's going on. Now, Fair. to me, to me, that's pretty tough. Like, yeah. to just okay. be like, I'm going to do this. That, maybe that's true. I mean, maybe what I can say that that's most useful, though, is to just resonate and like amplify what Lindsay was saying, because I knew she was saying there's different kinds of toughness, too, right? Like, uh, and I think there are at least two, and, and I think Lindsay named them like one, like injury and setbacks or, you know, um, uh, things that happen that are uh, like really hard to deal with. That's like where you need the toughness that like a lot of people call resilience. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is another kind of toughness, which I also think that extremely high performers have, which is that kind of when you talk about working out hard or being pushed to your absolute limit, that's every day. That's not like, oh, you know, this year, this terrible thing happened, how resilient am I going to be? But more like every morning and every afternoon and every evening, I'm going to do the following. So sometimes I think of it as like a like upper, like capital letter P perseverance in the face of real difficulty and then lowercase P perseverance, that daily grind. And I think sometimes, um, you know, little girls and boys who watch television or they like read a story, you know, in Sports Illustrated, they might have an appreciation for the kind of like uppercase P perseverance because it's like what movies are made out of. But I think real champions are also like all those thousands of hours that are not on film, right? I mean, one sociologist that I met who went and um, he embedded himself in swim teams from like the local corner swim team to like all the way up to Olympic hopefuls. He was like, nobody actually studied, like, he's like, it's so boring. I mean, if you just like spend six years with like, you know, an Olympic hopeful swimmer, it's basically, they're just like practicing for hours in the pool and like going to the gyms, like, you know, it's not really filmable. Um, And I do think that's why sometimes there's a mis misunderstanding of greatness that like it looks very you know shiny. there's a part of you know yeah exactly it looks so shiny but like how many people are there right. you? <laughs> yeah they say they say in coaches meetings sometimes that, that I'm able to sit in on that they talk about it's not sexy like this isn't a sexy thing that toughness for the movies is yeah you know Rocky beats the beats the guy from Russia and it's all fantastic but you've talked there you um Lindsay you said layers Angela, I'll describe what you just spoke there about uh, as dimensions. Like there's a, can I spike once and what's my maximum capacity versus can I do that two days in a row or can I do it every day in a row for four years to like, that's one of the things about the Olympics that is so fascinating that people are able to do that with zero reward, maybe even zero progress at times for months on end, but just with the, I'm going to keep doing this because I have an eight-year plan, as you just described, Lindsay. I, I want to explore this idea because for me, it kind of links with the whatever it takes. When I woke up this morning and I knew I had A, B, C, D, and E lined up, I needed a little boost, so I got some coffee and I did a workout. But on day two, that might not be the thing that allows me to still do it. I might be, I, it might be more, okay, I'm going to grip my teeth and get pumped up. And there's, a, there's different types of okay today's challenge is this how am I going to overcome that today's challenge is I don't feel like it today's challenge is I'm nervous today's challenge is all these different things that come up day to day like that's the definition of grit though like hmm. that all of those things together like that's what grit is you have to be able to you know do the daily grind you have to be able to fight through you know injuries or obstacles like that that is grit you know you don't become great at anything without grit 
It's, I don't think it's a lowercase p perseverance. I think it's a grit. I think All grit that. has both. I, I agree with the, the like, it's inclusive of both those things. Like if you just have one and not the other, right? Like you have to be able to do basically all the things that we just did. So I completely agree with you, like Lindsay. Um, but, and I wonder like if you just take the part where it's like consistently daily grinding it out, unglamorous um, thing. Can I just ask like, because Patty, you were saying like, if that, if part of, your this conversation is trying to help other people like figure out how Lindsay like I'm guessing Lindsay that something did you know well it's not like four years or well and more right but like it wasn't like or the eight-year plan like I, I wonder whether you had a way of being rewarded that wasn't as obvious to other people like what did keep you going for eight years on this like I loved um, the daily challenge. You know, I, I gave myself little small individual goals that I could accomplish every day. Um, and maybe, maybe it was more than one goal. Sometimes it was three goals. Maybe I only accomplished two, but, or one, but I felt like achieving something daily gave me like a positive affirmation that I was doing a good job. And that's what actually kept driving me and got me really into fitness is because you see the change that you create. You know, the more time you spend in the gym, the, the more results that you physically and physically can see. And that's something that is very, very rewarding. Like I like those positive affirmations. And that's actually one thing outside of the competition that's really been a struggle for me in, in, in retirement is that I struggle without those daily affirmations. Like I, I like, you know, accomplishing something. I like working hard and having a challenge and struggling to overcome it. You know, I like those things and um, I've had to find different ways of, of getting that. Um, that's not from my coach or <laughs> right. You know, it's on the, a, on the that's a great, like, that's a challenge. I know I faced, I had nowhere near the sporting career that you did. I'm not going to pretend I was paid to play sport for a little while. And I had the same thing. When it stops, when the challenge stops, there was like, okay, why would I go to the gym if I don't have to? Like it hurts and it's kind of a pain in the butt. Yeah. And take it away from athletes. A lot of people who live, who work at a high level, it could be surgeons, it could be financial traders, it could be artists who perform in front of thousands of people. It could be people in the military where they have a daily fix of like there's this challenge and a burst of adrenaline and I work and I get rewarded or punished but I know what's going on and then that goes away and it's kind of like you know you come home from deployment and then what happens it's just like I get up and I have breakfast like what was yeah. how did you not, translate that it's not great right drastic difference no it's, right. it was really really hard for me and I I mean I, it's not obviously as challenging as coming back from deployment um but it's a it's an entirely different life and lifestyle. And um, I had about like eight really, really hard months where I was really, really depressed and didn't, I like, I just didn't know what to do with myself. And I was also transitioning into New Jersey because my fiance got traded there and I didn't know anybody and I didn't have a gym. And it was like, all of these things kind of came together at one time. It was very, very overwhelming. But again, you know, the one thing that kind of got me through everything was, um, was finding a way to work out and, um, my dogs, I think that's one thing that veterans, like, I think every, I think every human should have a dog. 
We so would definitely have a nicer place. Don't you think people would be nicer to each other? If oh, yeah. Dog? I mean, if we were as nice to each other as we are to animals, well, I guess most people <laughs> to animals. Most people to animals. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like that's, and that's honestly why I got my first dog um, and all the rest of them. Um, but Wait, how many do you have? How many? <laughs> Three. I'm like okay. on the border of being the crazy dog lady. But it's almost a kennel. One more and I'm really crazy, but like three <laughs> is is like borderline. You're still within the range. Yeah. I'm within the range. Um, I have two big dogs and one little dog, Lucy. Um, but the Leo was my first dog and I got him when I was going into my second knee surgery. It was back-to-back knee surgeries within an eight-month span. I was going to miss then the 2014 Olympics. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this. You know, like I, I need someone that loves me no matter what happens. You know, if I you know, can't see again or, you know, whatever happens, someone that's going to be happy when I come home every day. And so I got Leo and he had been run over by a car and he had pins in his knees. So he was, up. so I was like, yes, we're two peas in a pod. <laughs> and then of course he was, he was depressed cause he was by himself. He needed, he need they need pack. So I got him a friend bear. And then, um, while traveling on the world cup, um, obviously my two big dogs can't travel. So I just kind of got to this point where I was freaking out on the road. I'm like, I just put, hit the panic button. I'm like, I need a dog right now. <laughs> And, um, you panic bought a dog. Yep. I did. Yep. <laughs> I was in panic mode. I was like, I need a freaking dog right now <laughs> before I lose my mind. Well, there are so many less healthy ways to like get your fix true, than, a, than a small dog. Like, do, do you feel like the dog is not only a source of unconditional love, which I do think champions need, mm-hmm. which is another myth that like, you know, that like, if you're a real invincible champion that you don't need love, I think you it's the opposite true you need more love exactly you need more support but like do you also feel do you like that um a dog needs you like do you feel like um, you need to be needed that is what and when I retired you know same with veterans that's what got me going like if I I didn't have to take my dogs out and feed them I wouldn't have gotten out of bed you know there's no like what's the point I have no job I'm you know there's nothing exciting going on. I'm not winning anything. I'm not skiing fast. I'm not even driving my car fast. Like I'm just, <laughs> you know, so like without them, I mean, it, it would have been a lot more difficult. I, I really think they're, they have a huge place in my life and I need them and they need me. And that relationship is probably one of the most healthy relationships I've ever had in my life, to be honest. You mentioned the word pack there and Angela, you chimed in as a, yep, you need unconditional love, but also that you need to be needed. The idea of having a pack to support you, which is, I didn't expect when we started talking about dogs that it would be useful, but here it is. Like to be a champion or to be gritty, Angela, what does your research say about like the need for a pack or a support crew? Like how does that help someone be gritty or be tough? So I mentioned this like sociologist that I love, and maybe I should give his name too. His name is Dan Chambliss. Um, And um, he said, uh, like, actually, after I had written the book, I invited him to give a talk. And uh, he summarized it so well. He, he, He started off his talk by saying, like, say you want to learn French, right? But trust me, it's just like a metaphor or whatever. Like, and he's like, well, you could like, you know, buy a book on French. And he's like, but you're probably not going to learn French very well. It's like, but then you could like maybe get like, you know, Rosetta Stones. He didn't listen to, he's like, but that's not, but you can go to classes. It's like, then you can get a tutor. He's like, but you don't really want to learn French. Go to France. 
and live in France. And that's one of his observations of, um, of anybody who's trying to do anything. But like when you are embedded in a, a culture, a team, a network, like everyone is getting up at four in the morning and doing it, like it's, it's almost impossible to imagine how people can do things that are uh, great outside of a context and within a group where everybody else is basically supporting them and also like part of this whole ethos. Um, and even Roger Bannister, who of course, like is the person who, you know, supposedly coached himself to, you know, break the four minute mile. Like I read his biography, but then I also read the stuff that his like contemporaries wrote. And I actually think even that was a bit of a myth. Like he didn't just coach himself. Like he was embedded in a whole group of people who were also interested in that. And he did have a coach. I don't think he even coached himself. Anyway, he had a coach named Fred Stample. So, so I don't really believe that many people are, are really able to do things completely on their own. I don't know. I wonder what Lindsay has to say though about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think you need support in a lot of ways. I think you need um, people pushing you. I think that you can get very far if you're exceptionally motivated. Um, but I think you really need a different level of, you know, coaching support, you know, there's, there's a whole another level that you can reach if you have that additional layer of, of teamwork around you, you know, you, you we're so much stronger, I think, as human beings together than we are individually. And I think that goes for every single level of life, you know, whether it's brainstorming in a boardroom or, you know, it's running on a beach, you know, you're always going to push yourself harder if you have someone next to you. So um, I, I, I kind of had it both ways. I sometimes trained by myself and I sometimes trained with other people. So I kind of had a visual and idea of what everyone else was doing. Like I, I trained sometimes with the NFL players and in LA and um, I trained with track and field athletes in San Diego. Like I kind of had a mix of, of just seeing what other athletes do and how hard they're working and like what, you know, someone at the elite level of their sport looks like and what their training looks like and how hard they're working. So I just always had like a broad view of, of, you know, hard work and, you know, where I fit in on that scale and where I could improve. I always enter every room knowing that I'm not, or thinking that I'm not the smartest person in the room. So how can I learn from everybody? And that, you know, is the same for sports, you know, how can I get better? What everyone can teach you something. And that's why being around each other is good because you can, you learn something from other people. Yeah. Having other people, I mean, Angela, you would be very familiar with this quote from Chris Peterson, other people matter in terms of not only well-being, but helping you get to where you want to go in life. You, you, one of the conversations that came up with a coach the other day was around, you know, what value does a coach bring, particularly in this period where like we may be locked away in quarantine and you can't, you're coaching from afar. And the two things that came out was one, a little bit relevant to the point you made earlier, well, both of you made around small progress. Like they're able to show you progress when you might not see it yourself or they're able to chunk practice so that you stumble upon progress. And secondly, they're able to, unlock or identify ways that you can play out psychological flexibility as in like today I need to grip my teeth tomorrow I need to just let things go and, and be present and good coaches are able to see things in you that you may not be able to see and I, Lindsay you mentioned 
a, a few questions back around bringing out what was already there as tough, the layers of toughness. Like I, I already had this, but I didn't realize I either had it or that I needed it. Yeah. And I'm curious for both of you, you've actually mentioned the, the ability for people to bring out qualities that are already there. In your work with, let's say for you, Lindsay, straight, like direct question, in your work with younger skiers, when you're trying to teach them some of Angela's stuff, like how much do you look at them and say, you've already got this, like you, I just, I'm just trying to help you bring it out versus, hey, you need to learn this new thing? It's very difficult because, um, you know, that's the hardest part about being a coach or being a mentor is figuring out what that person needs. And, you know, Yes, some some kids, you know, have a certain talent or, or they have something and they just don't realize it and you have to, you know, kind of unlock that for them. But, um, you know, some just have low self-esteem. Some, you know, you can, they're really positive and happy and they ski great, but you can tell them something technical a million times and they never learn it. You know, there, there are just so many different aspects of coaching somebody that are so difficult difficult to really specify and and they're so they're not tangible at all you know um and i think a great coach is not necessarily a great coach because they know the particular sport better than anyone else it's they know their athletes better than everyone else you know they're able to motivate them and push them and cheer them up when they're down and you know like you said uh, patty just gritting their teeth when they need to you know sometimes especially women I feel like a lot of women complain you know like especially when we're in groups you know it's like it's really easy to be down and like complain and a bitch and you know it's just like that's kind of inherently what what happens a lot of the times but a good coach is able to you know identify that and like change the course of the group without putting them down you know it's it's a very fine line. It's almost like the coaches are more of a psychologist than they are a coach. Oh my God, Lindsay, you you're like so a... quotable. I'm like, in a, <laughs> I'm like trying to write down these things, but I can't write fast enough. I think every good coach is a great psychologist. Like that's what they are. Like yeah. that's the whole job. I mean, not the whole job. I guess there's like. That's most of the job. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I can round up. Sorry, Patty, I cut you off. No, no, I was about to say the same thing there were like three sentences there I'm like okay that's going to be the grab that I introduced the episode but no that's going to be the grab but but particularly the idea of being able to say okay today you need to grit to your teeth tomorrow it's about acceptance the next day it's about fighting like there are different elements of psychology that like today you need this tomorrow you need that and I'm curious Angela with because when I first met you I'm not sure if you recall it but I definitely do because I happen to be in another country and stumbled onto the fact that I'd read your work twice and I was like flying to America and then it mentioned that University of Pennsylvania was in Philadelphia which I didn't know sounds very far away and exotic if you're not from America Pennsylvania (laughs) it's where vampires are from or something anyway so I land and I'm like what are the odds I'm going to meet her and I send out a couple of emails somehow stumble into the psychology center and get to knock on your door you shoo me away because you've got 20 students huddled around you but you gave me about two minutes and I was like look the real reason I want to talk to you is I'm a rookie coach I think it might have been my second or third year just as a football coach I'm I'm using air quotes there just as a football coach but I was a coach I had this gut feel similar to what you have both just said that a, a good coach or a great coach is a great psychologist. And so I was exploring your work engine and I said, how do I teach this thing that you like love it, agree with it, makes sense? How do I teach a young kid who may not have it? And your response at that time was, no, nah, I don't think you can. It's a trait. 
At, but I did I not say used. that. That is not, I never would have said that. I'm sorry. Okay. Like, I just want to say that, like, I did, you know what I probably said? I don't know how, but yeah, I think that, that like everything correct. about human nature is malleable. But anyway, but I probably said like, I don't know how. Yeah. How's I'm that? paraphrasing. I, I, I apologize. But, uh, but my, I was probably looking for a, here's an answer and you didn't give me one. Probably. That's so I, fair so enough. I've, I've coded that as I can't, but over the years, and I use some of the things that I've learned under you that we had in my thesis and also other stuff that you've done with um, with the Woo plan, et cetera. We'll put some links under the episode that you can teach some of these elements of psychology to a degree, right? Is that is that fair to say? I mean, you know, um, when I met Pete Carroll, like he also says that, like I said, that you can't teach grit, but I was like, I don't think I said that. I think I said, I don't know how, but regardless, um, what he wanted to say, and I think what you're saying, and then maybe what I'm hearing Lindsay saying also is like a coach is so important because they are able to uh, shape you, bring out things that you already have that you don't recognize, and then and then help you make things in yourself that you didn't have before. So like, yeah, and, um, you know, the world expert on world experts just died, actually. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, Lindsay, you've heard of deliberate practice, or you know it, you did it, and yes. you read about, you know, you know all about it. I so tried to talk to everybody deliberate practice and everyone's like wait what the side that, that also needs more branding i'm honestly but um anders erickson who's the scientist who discovered how experts practice differently than others he he died quite suddenly and unexpectedly last month and um i will say like in the wake of his death like one of the things that anders always said was um you know he studied world-class performers like lindsay nobody has ever really studied world-class coaches like nobody has ever done a systematic kind of like what makes a great like you know maybe they're great psychologists but also like just any kind of systematic scientific understanding i find coaching to be very kind of like when you when you when you hear how people get into it it's like very kind of like idiosyncratic and and i I don't know if there's like training for coaches there doesn't seem to be a lot of so i i do think there are great coaches i do think they bring out the best i don't i don't think we know enough about like great coaches i think what's you know? phil jackson that's my vote do you, is he your favorite coach i just think team sports are so difficult because you're dealing with so many psyches you know it's everyone is different and you have to get them to work together and you know you can have the most talented people in the world and they just don't work together and your team doesn't win and i I feel like, you know, obviously I watched The Last Dance. My fiance PK's watched it like 900 times. Um, <laughs> it's so good though. It's, so, it's good. so good. But that's one thing that I really pay attention to and I've, I've really been intrigued by is how Phil got all of these people, like especially Dennis, like, and he understood Dennis and was like, sure, yeah. You know, like I understand that you got your, you need to do your stuff. Like you do that and then come back and we'll all work together. And that's, I've never heard of a coach doing something like that. What do you think about Steve Kerr? Because like Steve Kerr was a player, right? That's another one that's interesting. So smart. He's so So smart. smart. I had no idea how smart he was. He's a genius. Are you becoming a coach? Is that your goal? Like, you know, you said that, no, you're not going to do that. (laughs) I like how you were like, for people who aren't watching the video, Lindsay's face was like, like, uh -uh. I'm intrigued by greatness, you know, like, like you both are. Like, I just, I want to know how he does it and what the process is and how did he learn to get that way? I mean, I know he was talking about, you know, he is uh, American Indian, you know, like there's some sort of American Indian teachings that he does. And 
Um, he's very like spiritual and, but I, I just, I wonder, I just, I, I would love to have a documentary just on Phil. Like right. I just want to know how Phil's I, mind works. I second that vote. Yeah. For sure. One of the things that did, the, the practical elements psychologically that he brought to the players that they probably wouldn't have received in a normal program was training on being present. So he bought yoga and mindfulness meditation in as part of his, like he was a very spiritual guy to both the Bulls and the Lakers when he went there. And it was an element that obviously there's two parts to it. And I want to, I want to kind of pivot to explore this because it's part of being able to be tough is being flexible and being in the moment, right? In terms of today, I need this as opposed to I'm just going to copy and paste what I'm supposed to do every day. And Obviously, there's a benefit, firstly, we'll, we'll go to that second bit in a second, but firstly, in being present in big moments. You know, 82 or 83, depending on what source you read, gold medals in the World Cup and also an Olympic and a World Championship, like, they are big moments. To get ready for that run, there's a big moment. And there's what, what sometimes I'll refer to as a sweaty palms moment where it's like, okay, we're here. I'm at the top of the run. There's no stopping this. Like it's, I can't go back. It's, it's worse to go back than it is to go forward. And I also know that there's huge stakes on the line and being present is very important in that moment. And I can see you nodding. Was that something that was natural to you or did you have to develop that? Was there a coach who developed that? Was there a practice you found that was like, okay, this helps me handle that really big shit. I kind of figured it out on my own. Like I was in a lot of high high stakes situation, like really high pressure situations as early as like 12 years old, 13 years old. And um, I would always get really, really nervous. And it was really my last, so I think I was 13 or 14. It was my last year that I was um, able to compete at this, like the biggest international race for juniors. And my dad always said that you know, if, if I won, I would most likely go on to be a world cup champion because probably 75% of the people that won that race did go on to win world cups, which is like, it's a crazy stat. Um, but I knew you were 14 at this point. Yeah. And I'm like, if I, you know, if I want to win, I have like, I have to win this. And so I'm standing there in the, in the start of the second, in the second round, I'm in second place. I was just freaking out. Like I was totally freaking out. So nervous. And I just, I don't know. I just kept saying, uh, I got on the start and say, I said, I started breathing, like try to lower my breathing. And I said, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I just said it over and over and over. And I just skied and I, I won. Um, but that was kind of, I think a big moment for me and kind of realizing that, about that self-talk, you know, just telling myself that I can. Um, and then I also had some other tricks that I figured out throughout my career. I used to write little notes on my skis. So when I was in the starting gate, I would look down and I would see, you know, um, stay forward or be aggressive. And that would kind of focus my mind on the, the things that I needed to do in that moment. And then I also, then when I got to the Olympics, realized that that's something totally different entirely. And um, I figured out that it, you really have to throw everything out the window and you have to find a way to be 
the best that you've ever been in your entire life in that one moment. And you have to be in that moment, right in the starting gate. So it's like very much a timing thing. You know, how do you time the rhythm of your warm up? How do you, you know, mentally get yourself psyched up so that you're, because if you get psyched up too early, then you're actually tired when you're in the starting gate because the adrenaline sucks so much energy out of you that you can be depleted entirely by the time you get to the starting gate. So like there's a, a very, it, it, it took me quite a few years to actually, you know, figure out, which is why I didn't win until um, the 2010 Olympics. Um, but I, I had a, a very methodical way of, you know, how I prepared and, and physically and mentally got myself in the state of being entirely present and like, you know, in the zone for those 10 seconds when I'm in the starting gate. Right. I mean, that's, uh, wow, I'm getting like goosebumps and I've got a thousand <laughs> questions we don't have time for them all. <laughs> I'm going to pivot to you, Angela, because I know we've talked at times, I'll mention this idea of like being clutch or being in the moment and you're like, yeah, but that's not what I study. I study long-term perseverance, et cetera. And to me, they're like inextricably linked in a way that to be able to persevere, I need to let go of the long-term thing and just be here right now and do this job that's in front of me. Like, like Lindsay said, stay forward, be a great, like I need to just do those task relevant things. And I'm going to throw an example to you of, uh, I'm not even sure if you were nervous, but your Ted talk, which is one of the most watched of all time. I imagine before the cameras rolled on that. Yeah. Right. My hair looks so good in that, by the way, it's never, (laughs) it's never looked as good and it never will. Right. There'll be a link. There'll be a link for people who want to find it. We can just Google Angela Duckworth and that'll come up. Uh, was there moments of, I mean, I know you teach all the time, so you speak in front of people. Was that different for you speaking in front of cameras, knowing that this is going to be on the internet for posterity? Yeah. I mean, look, for the reason I said that I don't study clutch or like, you know, that moment, like not all great uh uh, achievers have these this feature of their life where like, oh, and then these next 10 seconds matter the most, right? Like imagine you're a painter or something like it's not, so I want to study greatness in all its forms. And a lot of people, greatness includes those really clutch moments, military leaders, uh, you know, presidents, you know, Olympic skiers, but there are some domains of human greatness that just are not, they just don't have those clutch moments. And so right. that's um, uh, just whatever. So that's, that, that's maybe mm-hmm. why I gave that response for me. I mean, so I, I, the Ted talk was um, maybe different from the Olympics. Cause like when you're doing the Olympics, like, you know, that these are the 10 seconds that count. Um, I was just like, I have to go do this thing called Ted. And for some reason they won't let me um, like just do my usual thing, which is just to speak off the cuff. They wanted me to, I guess, because Ted has a time requirement. So they're like, no, this kind of talk you have to actually you know know everything that you're going to say like in the so that you don't go over so I was like oh that's weird um okay and then (laughs) and then I actually like you never actually have anything planned it's always off the cuff I mean yeah that's what makes her a great teacher though Uh, I mean I like I like to think, I mean, and also it's like, yeah, furiously taking notes during everything Lindsay was saying when you kind of like discovered on your own, maybe like about mindfulness essentially and like being present and throwing everything else out of your head and then having positive self-talk. I think for me, like great teaching is like you're really in the moment. And then when you're in the moment with your students, you're just like, you're just thinking in real time and you're like, okay, then that, that makes me think of this. So yeah, doing the Ted talk was weird because it was like, no, it has to be exactly six minutes. So like they didn't want me to think in the moment. 
Um, anyway, I, I don't I don't think it was the same because I wasn't thinking like, oh, maybe this is going to be like a really important part of my life. I was more like, oh, OK, I want to do a really good job for you and then I'm going to go home. Yeah, wasn't 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 nearly as terrifying, I'm sure, as being, Which is, you know. But that's awesome. <laughs> right. That's probably why you were, your hair looked your hair looked great and you presented like it was. I was very thing, excited about the hair. Felt. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a little bit, but not not nearly so. Uh, I think I think that idea of like being uh, able to handle clutch moments obviously has relevance to everyone, but just it's it's just at a level for somebody like Lindsay that I just I think very few human beings actually have to be that like they're not confronted with those kind of clutch moments. Um, some are. Right. Well, so it's interesting. I agree with that 100%. There is a, an analogy though or a parallel of when I'm about to have a conversation with my girlfriend that is potentially like going to be problematic for us, there's an element of 10 seconds that it's like, oh shit, we're going to do this? Okay, let's go. <laughs> right? And there's also I'm getting up to do that TED talk or the presentation at work or I'm, st- I'm getting ready to go on stage as a musician or I'm just getting ready for the exam. Like, I'm getting ready to go out and do this trial that'll help me make the platoon, like whatever it might be. There are elements not to the degree of an Olympic gold medal and probably not to the degree for many people of a TED talk, but internally the response is similar. Right? Fair, and, fair, and, fair. And all those things that were mentioned, like using breath, timing, uh, and then being aware of your self-talk um, and then being strategic about your self-talk um, uh, and some of those other hacks that I wrote down, right? Like, Anyway, that like that Lindsay mentioned, I, I do think you're right, even if you're not like at the top of the mountain about to like ski the downhill for the gold medal, like they're also useful. It's one of the great parts about being able to talk to people at the level of both of yourselves is even though I'm not chasing Olympic gold medal or a listener, Sally, isn't chasing being a MacArthur genius, both of us can learn and apply to our own situations. And with that in mind, I know we're a little similar to the TED talk. There's probably a time constraint. <laughs> uh, I, I want to finish off with this last question of what, what's your hope in terms of everything we've discussed here, Angela, clearly your life's work, Lindsay, your life's work in action and, and now coaching and like we're on here. We're not of, coaching. She said she didn't want to be a coach, but passing on messages. Let's, let's mentorship. say that way. Right? I'm, I'm yeah, now mentorship. 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 <laughs> cool. cool. And so those two areas, if, if you're trying to like, pass this on help people what, what's the biggest hope for you in this area in terms of helping people develop grit develop toughness uh handle the shit that life inevitably throws at you uh, i think people are happiest when they are pursuing goals not when they have just accomplished them so like that's why it's actually a happier place to be getting up every day i'm working on this challenge rather than having that in the rearview mirror that's why i think actually it is such a struggle when you retire or you transition careers or you come back from deployment because without that goal like that's you know the founding father said the pursuit of happiness but really it's the happiness of pursuit people are happiest when they are making progress on goals and maybe that's my recommendation that whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever titles you have, that unless you have a goal that you are pursuing, uh, then you are probably, in my view, probably not going to be as happy as you could be. Speaking of quotables, wow. Wow. You've said that before, I feel. I I don't really have to say anything, Angela. No, I want to hear what Lindsay's going to say. I think that's actually probably one of the best pieces of advice that I've learned from myself and that I think this is perfect to give on this podcast Um, because yeah, it's about finding new challenges, you know, finding 
new goals every day. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to figure that out. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we transition, we don't really know what's, what we need to work on, what, what's coming next. And it's hard to find that motivation and, and kind of the next light at the end of the tunnel, but there's always something you just have to find it. You have to find out, you know, what pushes you and what challenges you. And, um, it may not always be the same thing. Um, but there's always going to be something. Speaking of quotables, if there's always something, you just have to find it. That's a, a perfect way to end this. Uh, Lindsay, thank you for your time. Angela, thank you for your time. This has been my favorite episode so far. It may it may maintain that gold medal, <laughs> right? It may like maintain that that gold medal standard for, <laughs> forever. Who knows? But thanks very much for your time. Appreciate you. And for those who want to follow up, uh, Angela, you have your own podcast, uh, which I promised that I would get a plug in because you don't you're not great at. I don't really like <laughs> plugging things. Yeah, I have a podcast called No Stupid Questions with Stephen Dubner of Freakonomics. Great. So you can find that in all the podcast channels. Uh, and Lindsay, if listeners want to follow you, how do they do um, I have a little series on uh, YouTube um, called Career Day. And I take, I, I have some of my students or from my, my, my um, scholarship winners from my foundation. And they talk with um, some of their idols like Caroline Wozniacki and um, diff- just different athletes that they look up to. And it's on YouTube. LVTV. Awesome. So, uh, uh, what is it? LVTV. Yep. Perfect. Look it up. I'm going straight to that because that sounds super interesting. <laughs> Thank you both again for your time. Really appreciate it. So what is it got to be so